0: Do you need help with your journey following Jesus? Has your Bible reading brought up some interesting questions?
1: Um, I, I need a prayer request. I've heard um, pastors talk about you can't get to heaven just with good deeds. I was just wondering what you guys think. Is, the, is there a correlation between the seventh trumpet and Revelations as the last trumpet or is he talking about some other
0: trumpet? Finally, a place to get answers. We're ready to take your prayer request and answer your Bible questions. Call in at 303-690-3000. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Good afternoon and welcome to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. I'm here with you today taking your calls and texts live on the air. This is the show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible Or if you have something going on in your life and you're curious what the Bible says about that, or if you have a prayer request, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to help you uh, sort through some of those questions and and see what the the Word of God says about them. We'd love to pray for your prayer requests. So give us a call. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or text us 720-336-0897. Again, the text line. 720-336-0897. We want to welcome you uh, who are listening in Colorado and Wyoming on Grace FM. Our, Our broadcast range goes all the way from Cheyenne down to Colorado Springs. And so if you're listening here in the local area, we are glad that you tuned in today and we hope to hear from you. You can call us or text us. But we also want to say hello to all of you who are listening on the East Coast on Hope FM in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, and we also want to say hello to everybody listening on Truth FM down in Tennessee and parts of North Carolina and Kentucky. Just a reminder that those of you listening on the East Coast and the area around Tennessee, you're hearing the program on a one-week delay, but we would love to hear from you. We'd love for you to call in, and then you get the opportunity to call to tune in again the, the following week and listen to yourself on the radio and uh, you can tell your friends to tune in you can listen to how strange your voice sounds it'll be fun so uh, also we want to say hello to all of you who are tuning in online we know there's so many who are listening on our mobile app so if you don't have that yet you should go get it just go to your mobile app store whatever one you use for your phone and you can download the grace fm app and then wherever you're at over the internet you can listen uh, live to the programs Uh, the Bible teaching and to this show as well. And if you are at a computer or you have one nearby, you can always go to gracefm.com and you can listen right there in your browser wherever you're at. So the number to call is 303-690-3000, that's 303-690-3000 or text us 720-336-0897. Just a few words about myself. My name again is Pastor Nick Cady. I'm the pastor of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, and I am the host of Calvary Live every Monday. Also, you can hear us at Life in the Field is our daily radio show that airs at 2:30 PM p.m. Uh, every weekday and then Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. So Life in the Field, you can tune in here on Grace FM and listen to some of our messages there. Again, I'm the pastor of Whitefields Community Church, which is a uh, non-denominational church in Longmont, Colorado. We are a church that loves Jesus and we love the Bible and we love to study the Bible. And so we gather on Sunday mornings in downtown Longmont. We gather at 700 Longs Peak Avenue, which is the St. Vrain Memorial Building. or just one block west of Main Street on uh, Longs Peak Avenue, right on the northwest corner of Longs Peak Avenue, and Kaufman Street, so just right in downtown Longmont in the St. Vrain Memorial building. That building is right on the corner of Roosevelt Park, which is our city park here in Longmont, and we gather to study the Word of God and to worship, so right now currently we're studying through Paul's letter to the Romans, which has just been a very, very rich study. We're uh, not even halfway through it, Yet We're in chapter 6. We just finished the first half of chapter 6 this past Sunday in which Paul asks the question kind of like he's laid this foundation that we are not saved by our works but we are saved by the grace of God and so the the question that often comes up when he when you start talking about the grace of God is some people get nervous because they say hey Start saying that our status before God is based not on what we do, but on what Jesus did for us. Well, then you're opening the door to all kinds of, you know, people taking advantage of that. So rather than people seeing uh, seeing that and being relieved, people will see that and they'll be intrigued and they'll want to go out and, you know, become Christians gone wild and go out and sin a whole bunch. And Paul says, well, first of all, that would be wrong to do. But then he tells us how actually grace doesn't cause us to live licentious lives, but he explains to us how a person who's truly come to know and truly come to experience the grace of God, uh, it actually causes them to live a more godly life. And one of the scriptures I love on this topic, it comes from Titus chapter 2, and it's it's actually kind of, you know, goes right in the face of that idea that grace leads to licentiousness. Here's what it says, Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I find that really interesting. He says the grace of God has appeared. It has brought salvation for all people and it has trained us uh, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What has trained us to do that? The grace of God. And I think that when we really get a view of the grace of God, that is exactly what will happen. It will cause us to respond with thankfulness and gratefulness in our hearts and renounce godliness and worldly passions. So um, we're, we're, I'm excited about studying Romans this coming Sunday at Whitefields. We're going to be studying the second half where he talks about how um, we'll either be slaves to Righteousness or slaves or sorry slaves to unrighteousness or slaves to righteousness really be either be slaves to sin or slaves to God. And I just love this picture and get to talk about this idea of what it means to be a bond slave, a slave by choice, as Paul the Apostle calls himself. Just very exciting. So if you're in the Longmont area or any any of the surrounding towns, if you're in driving distance of Longmont, Colorado, we'd love to have you come visit with us. Check out our website, whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com, and you can find directions. You can listen to past messages, all that good stuff. We meet at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, and just uh, God's doing some great things in our church here. We brought on a new staff member recently, and uh, things are just going really great. Let's go to our call in line. Let's, let's go to Nick in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the program.
1: What's up, brother? How you doing? Doing great. Great man! Uh, I just had a couple questions for you personally as a pastor. Um, how important? I have like a couple questions. This is the first of many. Uh, how important is theology to you and to your congregation? To doctrine and diving um, into theology, how important is that to you personally and well, to your congregation?
0: Yeah, okay. So first of all, I think that theology is important to everybody, and I think that uh, everybody has theology, and and theology is important to all of our lives. And so I don't think that, you know, sometimes you get these Christians who say, hey, I'm just into, I just love God and stuff, and I'm not into theology. Well, actually, they are into theology, even just the idea of what they're saying is a theological statement. So, in my opinion, yeah. theology is all of life, and everybody is a theologian. The question is, are they a good theologian, or are they a bad theologian? So,
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, may I ask where you stand on Calvinism and Arminianism?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I, first of all, I I have to say that I think in general, these kinds of discussions, um, you know, this is kind of like, we want to label somebody. So we want to know what their label is so that we can put them in a category. Because once we put them in a category, we've determined a lot of things about them just by putting them in that category. Uh, So in general, I'd like to say that I avoid these kinds of Labels, and what I like to do in these cases is say hey let 's drop the labels and let 's actually ask about the issues that what like what is it that you specifically want to know, but I will answer so your question d- yeah, just so, to be fair so, to you yeah. and that is that so, I think that Arminianism is a flawed uh, flawed theological system, so i 'll tell you that yeah. much, but uh, okay. i I hesitate to fully embrace a label like Calvinism, because there's a lot of baggage that goes with it, and like I said, once somebody gets labeled with something, the whole purpose of giving them that label is so that you can kind of, you know, categorize them, put them in this bucket, and then kind of write them off. So that's, Yeah, and
1: I think it, I think honestly, at some level, um, even church historians thought putting, and I'm not saying that, that, you know, I don't think it's necessarily right or wrong to be put in that label of you know, being Calvinist or Arminianist, but even Church historians believe that as a Church, um, you know, we had creeds so that we knew what we believed in, and that was uh, crucial to the, the, the growing Church. Well, I, I don't, don't disagree that, with don't you at all at that point. In yeah. fact,
0: I would just say that... Um the, absolutely, and that's exactly why I say, hey, if you want to talk about an issue, let's talk about the issue itself. But uh, I will yeah. tell you this much, that I do think that Arminianism, as a reaction to Calvinism, I think that it went too far and that I, I, don't, uh, I don't agree with it. I find it to be not biblical.
1: Yeah, so, so would you stand on the doctrines of grace?
0: Well, see, again... You have to define what you're saying, so you're using uh, Calvinistic terminology, and do I believe in the doctrines of grace? Of course, I believe in the doctrines of grace. I believe in the Bible.
1: Yes, so you believe that God is completely sovereign over salvation? Yes Um, Do you believe that Jesus came to die for a particular people?
0: Yeah, so that's that's really the big question, isn't it? So we've got uh, the tulip, right? The five points of yeah. Calvinism. Just for our listeners' sake, I'll yeah. just kind of share what those are. And uh, so the total depravity, the T, total depravity, and then uh, the U, right? Uh, unconditional election. grace. Oh, Unconditional yep. election, sorry. I yep. is uh, yep. irresistible grace. L is limited atonement. And P is the perseverance of the saints. So... You, I, I you agree with. Zulip
1: wrong, but you put the eyes yeah, the but that's okay.
0: <laughs> all right, yeah, doing it off the top of my Don't head. Pro- so, um, no, yeah. So here's here's what I'm gonna say on that. the The only one that I think is the biggest issue is the limited atonement. I think the rest yeah. of those it kind of come down to definitions and splitting hairs. And I think that uh, most people who have an issue with them would probably not have an issue with them as much if they were defined properly. So, for yeah. example, the idea of total depravity, some people's problem with that idea is that they say, well, you know, not all people are um, completely bad, right? Like even people who are not Christians are capable of doing good things. And so say, sure. so therefore we must reject the doctrine of total depravity. Well, yeah. that's because they, they misunderstand the, doc, the, the statement of what total depravity means. What it means is that even when we do good things, uh, apart from Christ, we do them for the wrong motivation. We do them for self-justifying and self-glorifying motives. To... Furthermore, uh, when it comes to limited atonement, I, I think that that is really the big question. And I do think it needs to be defined. I think that's one where a Calvinistic system runs into a problem with the Bible. And um, and so here's how I would I would agree with it if it's defined in this way. That it is sufficient for all, but effective for the elect. Now, I would not agree with it. For another way in which it would say that it's not sufficient for all, and here's why: is because I I read, um, you know, First John, where it says that he's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of all the world. Now, someone who's a a hardliner would say, well, when it says the word world, it doesn't actually mean world. Um, it actually just means the world of the elect. And in that case, I think that that is a form of what we call eisegesis, which I'll just explain for our listeners who might be not be familiar with that idea. Eisegesis is when I have a preconceived idea and where the scriptures disagree with my idea or seem to disagree, I impose my idea upon the scriptures rather than what we call exegesis, which is where we let the scriptures define our theology. So I hope that answers your question. I will tell you um one more thing is that I I do tend to find that um that people who um so that uh sometimes when people get really into what what are called the doctrines of grace, which again I'm not opposed to, but I I just do notice this that sometimes when people discover the doctrines of grace so to say, uh what what happens is that they become evangelists to convert other Christians to their understanding of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. And so that's my only critique. I, uh, I, I absolutely do believe in the sovereignty of God over salvation, and I, yeah. I, I do believe in everything that the Bible says on that topic. So, Nick, thank you for your question, Thanks. and God bless Thanks. you. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. The number to call, 303-690-3000, that's 303-690-3000, or text us, 720-336-0897, that text line again, 720-336-0897. Let's go to Amanda in Fort Lupton, Colorado. Hi, Amanda, welcome to the program.
2: Hi. Um I just had a question um about the Nephilim. Um I just recently found out about them, and um it's kind of scary kind of blows my mind in a sense almost like seems unreal. Um, but I guess I was wondering, um is there are there any like descendants from them um on Earth today? And then, um I was wondering, like, you know, in the last days, like during the tribulation, um, I know that. Um, I, I'm not exactly like sure how it plays out. Um, but I know that there'll be like people seeking death, but, um, unable to die. Um, and so like, you know, it seems like that kind of, you know, goes along the lines of being like immortal or something like that. Um, so yeah, I just, I'm kind of wondering about yeah.
0: that. So, Okay, let's uh, answer those questions. What are the Nephilim, first of all? So we read about them. I'm sure some of our callers aren't sure, so I just want to kind of do a little background here. So Nephilim, by the way, the the name means fallen ones, or it can also mean giants. And it says in Genesis chapter 6 that these people, creatures, I'm not sure what we should call them, they were the offspring of uh, of relations between the sons of God. So that's also a curious phrase. What does that mean? Sons of God and the daughters of men. So there's a lot of debate as to the identity of what does it mean? Sons of God. Um, it, one opinion, and I think it's a good one. I, I actually agree with this. that It's the union between fallen angels <laughs> mating with uh, females and producing human males who then, continue to mate with human females. I hope that makes sense. So, and, and says that these, um, these Nephilim uh, were giants and they um, were part of the reason for God's destruction of the world through the flood. But we do know that there were also uh, Nephilim after the flood, right? And so, this is an interesting thing. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, it tells us, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. And so what that would mean is if the flood was indeed worldwide, which, which I believe it was, well, then this happened before the flood and it happened after the flood. And so uh, we read about them, for example, in the land of Canaan. You know, it, we read that they, the people went in and there were giants in the land. And uh-huh. it says that they were descendants of Anak, And that Anak and that they came from the Nephilim. And so, um, you know, that was really what scared the, you remember they sent the 12 spies and the 12 spies were really freaked out. And so uh, what we have here is that there were, there were um, a couple things that I would want to mention. You remember when the land ends up being distributed around the time of Joshua. So Joshua goes in, right? So the, the nation or the, sorry, the generation that was unbelieving and unwilling to go um into the promised land they had to die in the wilderness and then uh, joshua came in and and he obeyed god and he moved forward and they even fought against the giants and it says i uh, one of my favorite passages you know there in joshua it talks about how caleb even though he was an older person he said he asked could i please have the land where the Nephilim live. Like I want to go up to the land where the giants live and I want to fight me some giants. And he said, because they are bred to me. In other words, that's what sustains me. That's what gives me energy is doing God's work and fighting against these giants in order to occupy the territory. Um, so I think what I would say is that it does seem though that they were destroyed by the Israelites during the invasion of Canaan. And I'll give you one reason for that. And here's what it says in Joshua chapter 11. It says this, Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim. So the same the Anakim, the children of Anak, also related to the Nephilim. He cut off the Anakim from the hill country from Hebron down to Debir from Anab and from all hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. And Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. Now there has been some, some people have argued that, um, that even I'm sorry uh, David and Goliath, right So Goliath was uh, one of the Anakim. And so it's it would seem that that was kind of the case and uh, one of the reasons is because it tells us there that Goliath in first Samuel it tells us that Goliath came from this region, these five cities of the Philistines that were down by the coast and what's now Gaza and that that is the area where the Anakim, were kind of pushed to and maybe never fully uh, killed off until the time of, of let's say David and, and the defeat of the Philistines um, because of, you know, David and Saul in first Samuel. So, uh, so to answer your question, I do not think that there are Anakim or, or Nephilim still living today. Okay. Um, it would seem to me that God has not allowed that to happen. And, um, Reading one thing right now, it says that in Jude chapter 1 verse 6, it tells us the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment of the great day. So not all demons are in prison, we might say, but it would seem that the demons who were at one time mated with human beings have been bound. So... That's my justification for why I don't believe that they exist today. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Now you had reference Revelation chapter 9, verse 6, right? So it says, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. And so uh, were you essentially asking like during the tribulation, right, when God is God? brings judgment upon the earth before Mm -hmm. the end of all times right Uh, will there be people who are essentially are you suggesting that those people are um, kind of immortal like they cannot die like
2: like if they're like kind of semi-possessed like I guess like I don't know like it's just it's just like I don't see like how exactly that happens without a you know some kind of fear I don't know
0: yeah, well, I'll tell you this: what if you read it in context, right? So it's reading about we're reading about the, the five, or sorry, the the angels who blow their trumpets, and the they have these, um, and then the so the angels who bring the judgments, then the woes, right? And so, um, what it's talking about is just this this waves of judgment that come upon the earth as God pours out the deserved judgment on the earth uh, for people who have rejected him and who have sinned. And, um, and really, you know, this time is actually really in a way a very merciful time because God's still giving people a chance to repent. Really. It's like the final wake up call. And, um, when I read Revelations 9, 6, I got to say, reading it in context, what it appears to me to be referring to is not immortal people who are unable to die, but people who uh, are suffering so bad that they wish they were dead. Mm. And yet they don't die. And, and you know, it's that, it's that kind of idea of a fate that is worse than death. You know, what's worse than dying up suffering? And right, so yeah. these people are going to be tormented. It says for five months in verse five, right before verse six, it says they were allowed to torment them um, for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And that's actually speaking, if you go up a few more verses, he's speaking just of this pestilence that comes on the earth where there's, it seems that there are these locusts that swarm the earth. And uh, it says they were given power like the power of scorpions. And so this kind of flying uh, locust, scorpion, whatever this, you know, creature or bug might be, it sounds terrible. And uh, it doesn't sound good at all. So, uh,
2: Well, thank you. That answers a lot of my questions.
0: Cool. I'm glad. God bless you. Thank you. Bye. All right. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Katie from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Taking your calls and texts on the air today, we've got two open lines. The number to call is 303-690-3000. It's 303-690-3000. Or you can text us at 720-336-0897. Let's go to Daniel in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Daniel.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: doing great what's up
1: um i'm just curious about in the garden Eden when adam was in there was he never allowed to eat from the tree of life while he was in the garden so that would have been like two trees he couldn't eat out of
0: no i, I you know think... i mean
1: i thought there's only one tree in the garden he couldn't eat off and my friend would tell me no that there was two it was the tree of life and the tree of good and knowledge
0: Yeah, so where where he's coming from your friend, let me just kind of explain that it says that in the center of the garden There were two trees the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil God forbade them from eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil But what happened is they did anyway, right? They sinned We know that and then they brought into not only themselves but into the world the element of sin which brought death and then it says that after that, God put an angel with a sword at the entrance to the garden. This is all in Genesis chapter three, and the reason was it was to block them from eating of the tree of life and living forever. And I actually love—I uh, realized this a couple of years ago, and uh, maybe I'm late to the party. Maybe uh, other people realized this before I did. But I remember I was teaching through Genesis and it was like this aha moment, right? Like the light bulb came on in my mind and I was like, oh my gosh, I actually understand this now. I understand why God did this. It was a huge act of mercy. See, because here's the deal. If in their fallen state, the idea is that in their fallen state, if they had eaten from the tree of life and lived forever, then they would have lived forever in that fallen state. Right? And so... The idea of cutting them off from the tree of life is that it's better for them actually to die so that God can redeem them and he can make all things right that they have messed up, that we have messed up. Right. And so it's it's a really, really cool thing. And so um, I do not believe they were forbidden from eating from the tree of life before they uh, ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil um i think that they were encouraged to do so now it brings up a whole question which i don't think that we're capable of answering and that question is how many times do you have to eat from the tree of life like do you eat from it one time and then yeah that's my that's my whole thing right there is
1: that is there a certain point when you're eating from the tree of life that you're immortal and there's no going back or is it there's something like, yeah, from what I think in Revelation was that we are we're, we're, we're in one paradise in heaven on earth that will be eaten from the tree of life all the time, is what I was assuming, because there'll be a different fruit every month.
0: Right, and the, and the question that comes up is, is the tree of life an actual tree? Now, I do, I do believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was an actual tree, it was a real fruit, and so a lot of people bring up the question, was the tree of life, is that a, uh, you know, is it a what is the word I'm looking for? Allegorical thing in which the, is it an actual wooden tree or not? And, and I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out because I'm going to be there right in the new right. heavens and the new earth. And it says that right there, there is the tree of life and we're brought back to it. I'll talk about this a little bit more after the break, but Hey Daniel, thank you for the call and God bless you. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thanks pastor.
0: Yeah. You've been listening to Calvary live. This is pastor Nick Cady. Give us a call. We've got all open lines right now. 303-690-3000. 303 and we'll be back in two minutes' time after this break. Welcome back to Calvary Live. Give us a call at 303 690 or text us at 720-336-0897. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts live on the air today. The number to call is 303 690 3000. That's 303 690 3000 or text us 720 336 0897. Again, 720 336 0897. Looks like we currently have uh, three open lines, so it's a great time for you to call in if you would like to uh, have a question or, or If you have a prayer request that you'd like to be prayed for or something going on in your life and you're curious what the Bible has to say about it, we'd love to hear from you. Hey, while I've got you here, let me take the opportunity to personally invite you to join us this Sunday or really any Sunday at the church that I pastor in Longmont, Colorado, which is called Whitefields Community Church. And uh, this Sunday, we have a a special Sunday, you know, uh, we're... It's if you've been looking, if, you know, maybe you've heard of our church or you've been looking for an opportunity to visit and you just haven't yet. Or maybe you have family or friends who live in Longmont, but you don't live in Longmont or or the surrounding area. um, This Sunday would be a great time to bring them because this Sunday, Pastor Ed Taylor from Calvary Aurora. And, you know, he's he's one of the hosts here on Calvary Live and he is on Grace FM all the time. uh, He is going to be teaching at our church in Longmont. So it's a great opportunity. We're looking forward to having Pastor Ed come up and he's got a special message. We had to actually do some shopping for him. That's the first time that uh, I've had somebody, uh, you know, guest teach and they sent me a shopping list. But we're looking forward to that. He's going to, I guess he's got something he wants to send home with everybody on Sunday. And so uh, we'd love for you to join us, you and your your family or your friends uh, or just you yourself. So give us a visit this coming Sunday, 10 a.m. in the St. Vrain Memorial Building in downtown Longmont which is at 700 Longspeak Avenue, just one block west of Main Street on Longspeak Avenue in downtown Longmont. The address, again, 700 Longspeak Avenue. You can find directions and you can listen to our messages and all that good stuff on our website at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com. And... Uh, this past Sunday, we had a great uh, time at Whitefields. We did our annual outdoor service. So once a year, we take our church outside. We have a park that's directly in front of the entrance to our building. It's a, you know, it's a smallish park, which is part of the bigger city park, which is Roosevelt Park. And so right there on the corner of Longspeak and Kaufman, there's this park, which is directly in front of our building, the St. Vrain Memorial Building. And so we bring church out into the park and it was just a great time. We had a little bit of rain right at the beginning of service, but it let up and it became really nice. Actually, I heard uh, from our worship leader, Mike, he told me that yesterday was like the coolest August day that we've had since like, I don't know, he said something like 1987. So it was great, you know, because sitting out under the blazing hot sun, I feel like here in Colorado we get you know we only get a couple kinds of weather we get like snow hail and laser beams that's it right like this laser sunlight that we get sometimes so we didn't have that yesterday's great time out um uh outside worshiping the Lord and we had you know people from the surrounding area people walking their dogs stopped by and joined us for church and people uh, at the apartment buildings across the street came out on their balconies and listened to the word of God being preached we're we're currently in Romans chapter 8 we just began this past Sunday Romans chapter 8 and this you know wonderful text that now uh, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. And God did what we could not do because of our weakness. He did it in Christ uh, so that we might be set free in him. And so just to text this next Sunday, we get into something I'm particularly passionate about, which is adoption. And we read about in Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 12, how we have been adopted by God into his family. Uh, We are not only pardoned from our sins, but he makes us his family and gives us an inheritance and calls us his own. Just a a beautiful, wonderful thing. So we'll be talking about that in the upcoming weeks and this Sunday, Pastor Ed. So come visit us at Whitefields Church in Longmont. The address is a web website address is Whitefieldschurch.com. We still have all open lines, so give us a call. The number to call 303 690 That's 303 or text us at 720-336-0897. Again, the text line seven two zero three three six zero eight nine seven. Just before we went to break, we were talking to Daniel, and Daniel was asking me a question about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And um, and one of the things that I didn't have much time to talk about because we had to go to break, and I wanted to just revisit on this side of the break, is this, that that, that picture of the tree of life, see what, what that represents is that in Eden, right, we have the ideal, the way that God made things to be, which we see there was no sin, there was no shame. The people were in relationship with God and they were living in harmony with each other and with nature. And then, of course, all of that was ruined as sin came into the world. The harmony was disrupted. Relationships were broken. Our relationship with God was broken. And along with sin entered not only death, but entered shame. And what we see is that the... the Bible, if you look at it as a grand story, that it finishes, so it leads us on this arc. We see the ideal, then we see the problem or the conflict, the thing that came in that messed everything up, which was sin. We're still dealing with the consequences of that now, but that God didn't give up on us. He saved us. He brought about the Savior. The great climax of the story is Jesus on the cross and then in his resurrection, and now we're seeing the repercussions of The climax of the story, but the conclusion of the story we find in Revelation, the very end where it says that we see a new heavens and a new earth descending down. And it says that in the new city, in the new Jerusalem, that we dwell with God. There's so many cool pictures in there. I would really encourage you to read the end of Revelation. Like, for example, it says that there will be no more sun. There will be no need for a sun because God himself will be our light. And then it says this uh, this interesting thing. It says that there in the middle of the city was the tree of life. And what we see is the restoration of all that was broken and the return to Eden. But it's no longer Eden as in a garden paradise. Now it's a city. It's the city of God. And we are with him forever. That that is what we look forward to. But I love that picture that we were cut off from the tree of life in the garden of Eden because of sin. And yet, because of Jesus and his redemption, because of the gospel, we are reunited with the tree of life to live forever with him. Amazing. Wonderful picture. That's our hope as Christians. So you're listening to Calvary Live. The number to call 303 690 That's 303-690-3000. Or text us 720-336-0897. We still have all open lines. So give us a call. But in the meantime, let's go over to our text line. We have a text from Jonathan. Jonathan says, Dear Pastor, I have tattoos on my upper arms and forearms. Nothing vulgar, but I got them before I committed completely to Christ. I'm working on my degree to be a pastor. Am I going to have a hard time getting a job as a pastor with tattoos? Any thoughts? Uh, Thanks and God bless Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan, I, I think it's awesome that you've committed your life to Christ and, and what a cool thing that you're working towards being a pastor and you feel called to that. Hey, I personally don't think you're going to have a lot of trouble getting a job as a pastor with tattoos, but it would probably depend on the denomination and it would probably depend on the group. I know that certain groups are, um, you know, more conservative when it comes to that and, you know, they frown on that a little bit more. Um but, hey, I think that most churches aren't going to give you a, a lot of trouble with that. It's probably going to depend on the congregation and the denomination that they're a part of. But, you know, Jonathan, there's a way in which I wonder, you know, if, if someone really takes a big issue with that, um, it does. I don't know if that's the place that you want to be, you know. Um, so especially as you mentioned that you got these tattoos before you completely committed your life to Christ. I mean, I think that's just... Even if you didn't, I, I don't think it would be an issue. But the fact that you did should make it a slam dunk. So Jonathan, I would just encourage you, if you do have trouble with that, that's probably not the place for you anyway. And, um, and you know, they those signs on your arms, whatever they, they are, whatever those tattoos may be, you know, if even if they were something vulgar or, or contrary to God, you know, they're they the marks of what God has brought you out of and saved you from. Now, that to be said, I don't believe that tattoos uh, you know there is a verse in Leviticus where it's forbidden to cut the body and get tattoos but that is tied directly even in the verse to pagan worship and so as long as you're not participating in pagan worship I think that that is the the key factor there you know, I had a call about this last time I did the show. Someone was asking, you know, is it okay for Christians to get tattoos, to have tattoos? And and I think that's really what it comes down to. What is the reason why you're doing it? Are you doing it out of pagan worship? Well, then in that case, you definitely shouldn't get tattoos. If you're doing it um, because it's art, well then I think that's a different issue. If you're doing it because, you know, like First Peter, he talks about let your beauty, let your let what be let, sorry, let what makes you special. Be not your outward adornment, whether that's with jewelry or, you know, makeup or even tattoos. Um, let that not be what is special and unique and the thing that defines you. Let the thing that defines you be the beauty of a, of a heart that has been transformed by God. So hope that answers your question, Jonathan, and God bless you as you work towards your goal of being a pastor. That's awesome you listen listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts live on the air today. Let's go to, well, let me give you the number to call. The number to call, 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or text us, 720-336-0897. Let's go to Simeon in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hi there. Welcome to the program. Hey, Nick. Hey.
1: Hey, Welcome I just have a question or more of wanted to get your perspective on um, when is the person exactly saved, because I've, uh, you know, run across different denominations that believe you're saved when you're baptized, and then other do- denominations believe, you know, if you just confess with your mouth, and then they've adopted kind of a, that altar call um, to prayer, and that's when you become saved. Now, I was just wondering if you could like kind of clarify that up for me.
0: Yeah. And so I'm going to take you to Ephesians chapter one. And I'm looking for this verse. Yeah, here we go. Ephesians chapter one. And here's what it says. I'm going to start in verse 11 in him. That's in Jesus. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now check this next part out. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. and Sorry, here's where I really want you to pay attention. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So if you're... If your question is, at what point are you actually saved? Here's my answer. It is at the point when you truly stop trusting in yourself, stop trusting in your religious um, adherence or in your moral record. And when you give up trusting in yourself or trusting in anything else, and you trust alone in Jesus Christ, what he did for you, in his life in his death in his resurrection so in his life that he met all of God's righteous requirements on your behalf in his death that he took your um, judgment upon himself for your sins he took it upon himself on the cross and in his resurrection that he made a way for you to go to heaven by essentially kicking down the walls of hell and and coming back so uh. When you do that, when you put your trust in him, and I, I love that word uh, pisteo in Greek, it means to trust or to believe. So we have two words in Greek. This is one of those cases where they actually only have one word for both, both things. It's the word pisteo. And it doesn't just mean to believe that something is true. Like if I tell you, um, hey, you know, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1962. I think right um, now you you say yes, I believe that but that's not exactly the same, right? This is believing in something in a different way and the, the way it works is um, it's, You could define it in a kind of multitude of ways, right? So it means to trust in to cling to to adhere to and to rely on so if you do if that is the kind of trust and belief that you are having in relation to the gospel this good news of what jesus did not what you do but what jesus did on your behalf that is the moment when you are saved now here's the thing so is it possible to come up for an altar call or to raise your hand or to even pray a prayer and not truly do that in your heart right where you're clinging and believing i think uh, the answer is yes Um, now is it possible to even be baptized and not truly believe, trust, rely on, adhere to, cling to Jesus and what he did for you in your heart. Absolutely, right? So you can do all those outward things. And so I just want to make it clear that it's it's not when you do any outward thing. It is absolutely an inward thing that happens within you when you believe. Now, I don't know at what point that takes place. And I, and I think it's really hard to just pinpoint it, right? Like say... Well, I believed, uh, you know, on January 22nd, 1999 at 736 in the morning. I, d- I don't know. But the truth is that God knows. And and I think that, you know, once, you, once you're on the other side and you're like, yes, I do believe. I think that, you know, that you're on the other side. And the Holy Spirit, of course, the Bible says uh, bears witness to that with your spirit that you are a child of God. Um, but I don't think a lot of us are, you know. It's, it's really hard, I think, to pinpoint the exact moment or day. I, I know that for me, I'm not actually sure of the the precise day when my thinking and my, my trusting actually shifted. But I will tell you that I have felt that there have been times in my life where it was almost like I got born again, again. Where it's like I, I, I realized the gospel and I understood it in a way I hadn't before. And I realized that I had, in a way, been trusting in my own self and not in Jesus, um, whether for my salvation or for God's blessing in my life or whatever it might be, my right standing with God. And and I had to come back to that place. So, you know, I, I would focus more. It it needs to be something that takes place within you, not something that is marked by an outward action. Right. And, and I think that's really important because I think it those things are not bad. It's not bad if someone, you know, Ask you to make a commitment, raise your hand, or to come forward. Uh, I think obviously that every believer should be baptized, yeah. but um, I think that you should do all of those things. But the moment of salvation is taking place uh, when you stop trusting in yourself and relying on yourself, but in you start doing it in Jesus.
1: Okay. Could you then argue that salvation is kind of like a it's an ongoing process? at like while you, you know, pro- like go through your faith as so
0: well. I, is... I, I will say this. So salvation has three aspects. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and it's talked about in three different ways in the Bible. It's talked about in the past tense, meaning it says this, you were saved when this happened, right? Yes. Yeah. And then it talks about it in the present tense. You are or the present continuous. You are being saved. And and I'll talk about that part in a second. And then ultimately, there's the future aspect in which you one day will be saved in a way which you are not yet. Right. Okay. Okay. so you are saved like legally in the sense of like God has stamped your ticket and, you know, or, you know, put his rubber stamp on your thing. You have been declared righteous in Christ. The rest of it is it's going to happen. Right. The, it, the future is going to happen and you are being saved. Like one of the great examples of this is in Luke chapter. I believe it's chapter 10 where Zacchaeus comes. And what does God say to him? Like Zacchaeus kind of is like, I'm going to give back everything I took with interest. Like I'm going to give people more than I actually mm-hmm. took from them. And what does Jesus say? He says salvation has come to this house today. Not only has he believed, but you know what? He's being saved from his slavery to money and love for wealth um, because he was a slave to those things. And, and I think there's a sense in which we are being saved out of the idolatries of our hearts um, as an ongoing process. And then one day in the future, we will be saved in a way which we are not yet. In other words, our salvation will be complete. And that is the day that we look forward to uh, in the future. So it's it's past, present, and uh, future. It's a completely comprehensive salvation. Cool. Yeah. Well, God bless great. you, Simeon. Thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Have all right, one. bye-bye. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. We've got 10 minutes left in the show, and we've got all open lines. It's a great time to uh, call in. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or you can text us at 720-336-0897. Got a reminder here to mention to you hey, I have a website that I update uh, once or twice a week. And if any of you would be interested in that, I write articles, a lot of articles, uh, very similar to what we do here on Calvary Live, just kind of answering questions that come up uh, that people ask me or questions that people wonder about a lot. And that blog is called the Longmont Pastor, but the website of it, the address is nickcady.org. So that's my name, Nick Cady, N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. And you can go there and read some articles. So, so I'll share with you one of the ones I recently wrote about because it's also a question that I had texted in. And so um, the question that was asked is, is Jonah a historical story or is it an allegory? And then they, they had a follow-up, which is, what about Esther? So Jonah and Esther... So so we might uh, not have time to discuss both of these in detail, but you can go to my blog and check out, and I think that you would uh, benefit maybe from some of the things that have been written on there. So that's nickcady.org, uh, N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. So is Jonah historical or is it allegorical? And um, now I'll give you just... I'll give you a preview of my answer. I believe that Jonah is historical, but let me tell you why. Um, The story of Jonah, right, is this kind of fantastical story about a rebellious prophet who runs away from his calling, then tries to kill himself. He gets swallowed by a giant fish who, who barfs him up on the beach back where he came from. Then he walks into a large city. He preaches the worst sermon ever preached in the history of sermons, and the whole city repents, much to Jonah's dismay. What's funny about the book of Jonah is that, like the book of Esther, it is not just history for history's sake, right? Like it is probably the most entertaining history that you'll ever read. And the reason is because the primary literary device in Jonah is that of satire. Satire, which is, the, it is defined as the exposure of human vice and folly through the use of humor and irony. In other words, if you read Jonah and it doesn't cause you to laugh, you haven't really understood. You haven't really let it sink in. It's meant to cause you to laugh, right? But that doesn't mean it's not true. See, that that's the thing. So is Jonah an allegory? I'll give you some reasons why most scholars believe Jonah is historical and not allegorical. So number one, Jonah is a historical figure. He's actually mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14. It speaks of a prophet named Jonah who lived in the 8th century BC. And that exactly lines up with the events of the book of Jonah. And it would line up also with the Assyrian Empire being very powerful at that time, and before the Assyrian Empire attacked uh, Israel, which happened about 100 years after Jonah. So number two, the, the story presents itself as a historical narrative. So there are allegorical stories in the Bible, like the story of the Good Samaritan, that's an allegory. The story of the... Prodigal son is an allegory. They're they're stories which are given. No, we aren't given people's names. We aren't told where they live. We aren't told when they live. We're just told, uh, you know, basically who they are. And so Jonah actually gives us not just uh, general terms. It actually gives us historical and geographical anchoring, which means that Jonah is meant to be, it's intended by its writer to be read as a historical story. And thirdly, there's no real evidence against it being historical. Like there's no reason why we should believe it's not historical except for the, you know, fantastical nature of like the whole city repenting. But that's actually not even surprising, really, because in the ancient world and even in the Eastern world today, it's much more communal than it is uh, individual. Like we live right now in America in the most individualistic society that's ever existed in the history of the world. But at those times, uh, and you even think about how Europe was converted to Christianity, you know, entire nations like I lived in Hungary and they they have a date when the entire Hungarian nation converted to Christianity and they did it as a nation because the king said so. Now, they didn't all in their hearts, obviously, convert to Christianity, but it wouldn't have been uncommon to th- for people to think in a very communal nature rather than individualistic nature. Uh, And finally, Jesus spoke of this story of Jonah as having historical and future relevance. So in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said that the men of Nineveh will arise at judgment day with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So Jesus spoke of the story of Jonah as having historical and future relevance. So I do believe that Jonah is a historical narrative, not just an allegorical one, but more stuff like that. You can check out my blog, nickkatie.org. Let's go. We've got a few callers that we want to get to, and let's go to Pat in Aurora, Colorado. Hi, Pat. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. What's up?
2: Well, I'm a practicing Episcopalian, and I've been going to this church that I really like for more than two years now. Well, they got a new rector, and she is a lesbian. And I'm just a little conflicted, because according to the gospel, that's not right. So how can somebody be preaching the gospel if they're doing something against that? If you could help me with that.
0: Yeah, Pat, I'm really in agreement with you here. I don't think that somebody who is disqualified from being a um, Christian leader should be being a Christian leader. I mean, I think it's that simple. You know, we have some very clear outlines for who should be doing certain ministries, for example, in 1 uh, Timothy and in Titus. And, um, you know, some of the mainline denominations in the United States have been um, have been trying to be uh, very welcoming and not judgmental, but at that, but they've done it at the expense sometimes of caring about biblical doctrine and and biblical standards. You know, one of the ones that I found to be really shocking is that uh, there's a Presbyterian denomination that I'm aware of. It's a PCUSA, and in 2008, they removed the stipulation that um, their pastors and ministers and leaders have to be celibate or sorry have to be monogamous if they are married in other words what that means is that they allow their um, clergy to have affairs and they don't get canned for it like they don't have any repercussions like they can continue being clergy and it just reminds me of what Jesus talked about in I'm sorry what what Paul the Apostle talked about in first Corinthians where he says there are things being done in your church that you celebrate you pat yourself on the back for doing them but in the outside world like the pagan people blush over those like the pagans even think that that's not right right like and and so pat i'm really i'm not
2: not judgmental if people are gay that's their thing but i just find it interesting that if you're going to preach the gospel that you could do this
0: yeah pat i think that the church like every organization but particularly an organization which exists for the reason and the purpose that we do, we must have standards. And those standards have to be set by something outside of us and just what we think in our culture is the right way that things should be. And, uh, and I think it just testifies to the fact that we're dealing with a God who is outside of us, the fact that sometimes he tells us things that which, we, which, which might bristle against our culture. And so uh, we're in, we have one minute left in the show, but Pat, I just want to agree with you. I, I don't think that that's a good thing.
2: Okay, well, thank you. I appreciate your time. But one last question. Since, I mean, does a a lesbian or a a homosexual priest, I mean, would they teach the gospel or would they leave stuff out?
0: Well, yeah, that would be, I think that they would inevitably run into conflicts with their own lives. Uh, I think that that's obviously the case. And so, um, yeah, I think that they're compromised in a sense that they'll have a, a conflict of interest. So, Pat, God bless you, and I hope you find a, a church that, that uh, you can go to. You've been listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Uh, have a great night. Tune in to Calvary Live every weekday, 4 to 5 p.m. God bless you. You've been listening to Calvary Live. Tune in next time for prayer and God's word.